This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Einstein, James Dean, Brooklyn's got a winning team, Davy Crockett, Peter Pan, Elvis Presley, Disneyland, Bardo, Budapest, the Alabama, Cruz Jeff, Princess Grace, Peyton Place. Never seen a single episode. I have never been there. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that's a number one song that's a skip and a trip around the story of the post-war world. Our guru is Billy Joel. Our mission is to feed our heads and our pledge. Together we will learn without ever feeling like we're learning. I'm Tom Fordyce. This is the magnificent... Katie Puckrick. Katie, should we toast our legs around the fire? I would like to wrap my legs around whatever fire you got. <laughs> <laughs> and our topic today, Katie, is one which I thought I knew about, but didn't. It's Peyton Place. Peyton Place. Which is a book. It's a film. It's a TV show. What it isn't is Melrose Place. Oh, wrong address. what I was thinking of. Wrong address. Any dealings with Peyton? No dealings from me with Peyton Place, although... I vaguely have it slotted into my brain with Harper Valley PTA. Do you remember that song, Jenny C. Riley? At the Harper Valley PTA, uh-huh. about a uh, small town American hypocrisy. So um, I may be going down an avenue and just blurring <laughs> things together in the hopper that is my brain, but we can get into this in a little bit. Thankfully, rescuing all of us, listeners and Tom, from my jibber-jabber is a person who is back now for her fourth fire appearance. Is that a record? I think it could be a record. Boom. We have thrilled to her on the South Pacific episode. We have become ecstatic through her contribution on The King and I, and we have experienced damp cloth utopia <laughs> On the Dacron episode, she is the deputy head at the Eccles Center for American Studies at the British Library, and she's chair of the British Association for American Studies. And apparently she really, 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 really wanted to come back on this episode. She is Dr. Cara Rodway. Welcome. Thank you. And no, you're totally right. Your your Harper Valley PTA <gasps> does have a lyric about Peyton Place oh. in it, which is Whoa. which is why your brain had decided oh. to, to cobble those two together. It's like the penultimate verse. It says, and then you have the nerve to tell me and think that as a mother, I'm not fit. Well, this is just a little Peyton Place and you're all Harper Valley hypocrites. Oh, I was, was going to say piece of shit, but uh, <laughs> that was 1968. It was. Yeah, that's a really good song. Jenny C. Riley. I'm, indeed, I'm, indeed. I'm and then um, Dolly Parton did it the following year so she's on her album in so 69. excellent yeah so the, yeah the plot of that song calling out all manner of uh parents parents at the school exactly. who are kicking up a fuss about nothing so yeah Peyton Place published in 1956 becomes one of the biggest and most scandalous sensations in publishing before being made into a major motion picture and later a long-running tv soap opera the author was Grace Metallius, uh, who was born into poverty in a mill town in New Hampshire in the American Northeast. But before we get into Grace's life, and I really want to do that, Cara, let's talk about the book that started it all. What is Peyton Place about? So Peyton Place is quite a big book. There's quite a lot going on. Um, and it's, it's a story about a small town called Peyton Place. And the Peyton Place itself is kind of a character, as the title would suggest. 
I think the thing that surprised me when I first picked it up, because you know it as this very sort of 50s novel, is it's not set in the 50s at all. So it actually starts in 1936 and then you move forward through the war years. So it follows three kind of key women. So you have Alison, who is the sort of heroine. She's an aspiring writer. You meet her as a kind of slightly awkward teenager. Her mother, Constance, is the other one of the other sort of lead women. And Constance hides the secret that uh, Alison is actually illegitimate. Uh, she went off to New York to, to have a career, had an affair with a married man, got pregnant, had the baby. He then died, but left her some money. And so she goes back to Peyton Place, having forged Alison's birth certificate, made her a year younger than she really is, and claims that she's been widowed. And so she lives, you know, in this wonderful way of sort of this period. She's she's seen as quite over the hill. I think she's meant to be thirty six, mm. um, but you know, she's she's hiding this this uh, this terrible secret of of the illegitimacy of her daughter. And then the third female character is Selena Cross, who is the working class girl from the wrong side of the tracks, who's Alison's friend. And she um, is actually one of the more interesting bits of the book because she kind of saves it from basically being a sort of family melodrama of Alison and Constance. And it's Selena who. Uh, is raped by her her stepfather, has an abortion, and then the stepfather is driven out of town by the upstanding doctor. Uh, but he then reappears during the war. He's gone AWOL and uh, tries to attack her again, and she bludgeons him to death. And then she and her younger brother bury him under the sheep pen. There's a lot and of then, big themes on the lot of big themes. And, and, and I've told you about, you know sort of a few millimetres of this very thick book <laughs> ah. um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of other stuff so you've then got a whole sort of plethora of other town characters because what Grace Metallis is really trying to do which yes it's sort of you know there's titillating elements but she really is really telling this really interesting story about female desire and autonomy because actually what I think is really interesting is all three of these women it, yes it's about them sort of coming to understand themselves as sexual beings but it's actually also about carving lives for themselves that they want it's not just about you know marriage or men I mean it's actually it's a big book and it is quite complicated there's a lot of stuff where you can argue one way or the other but I think that because you know Alison wants to make a career as a writer Constance runs a, a clothes shop in town she supports herself and her daughter with the dead man's money but she makes this going concern and Selena gets a job working for Constance in the, the clothes shop and eventually manages it so she kind of she pulls herself up the class ladder you know it's not and I, what I, one of the things I really love in the book is that she ditches her useless middle class boyfriend who won't <laughs> stand by her during the murder trial because he wants to be a lawyer and he's worried that it will sully his reputation and actually all credit to her she's like you know what just don't bother coming back and so she kind of, you finish the book with her kind of this empowered, I mean, obviously very troubled figure because everyone knows that she murdered her abusive stepfather. But she kind of, she's kind of crawling up out of poverty that she's born into. Um, and yeah, and I think it's her story that's really one of my favourite bits of the book. Why was Peyton Place, the novel, such a marble melter for its audience? Well, I think that part of it is that it discussed themes that were not publicly very accessed you know it talks about incest it talks about abortion it talks about female desire it describes the sex act you know but but interestingly it's really funny that that's what's become remembered about it because actually as I think I was trying to explain there's actually so much more and there's so much more sort of plot and what one of the things that Metallis is really trying to do is to show that the hypocrisy but also actually how all of these power structures work against these women, you know, how sort of in contrast to the women you have, for example, Rodney, who is the the son of the mill owner. Um, and he is a sort of gad about town, rich man's son, doesn't have to work for anything. You know, he's off, you know, 
cavorting with his lower class girlfriend, Betty, who gets pregnant. You're not quite sure. It's nicely done whether she knows she's pregnant and she's trying to lead him on to make him think it's his. It's not it's not really clear. But Rodney just says, no, of course, I'm not going to marry you. And her dad just gets his dad to, to pay her off. You know, just his callousness and his, you know, the fact that nothing will touch him because of his social standing and his wealth. You know, so you have all these, these different sort of little tidbits of other, other characters. And I said Ted, the middle class boyfriend who ditches Selena when, you know, they're, they're quite a sweet couple all the way through the book. This sort of, you know, going over many years. But, you know, finally, his true colours show in the, the moment. And do we think that Grace Metallius is holding up a mirror to what American mid-century society was like? I think she's I think she is. I think she wants to to make clear that you know that all of these things exist. Um and I think she wants you know she herself was quite she suggested that she was sort of flummoxed by all this interest in, you know, the sexy parts of the book. She's like, well, you know, sex is you know, everyone has sex. Sex is just every day. You know, of course you're going to if you're talking about people's lives, of course you're going to talk about it. Why is it so sort of surprising? And I think one thing that I find quite striking is how effective the book is at basically holding up a mirror to a, you know, a society that considered itself, you know, very sort of, um, you know, the idea of classlessness, you know, that everyone was sort of affluent and middle class in the 50s. And it's actually it's a really searing indictment of the crappiness of these of these poor working class lives, which this very sort of upstanding middle class town kind of allows to exist on its periphery because they need all these, you know, workers who populate the factories. It needs them, but, you know, that they basically turn a blind eye. Um, and that's some of her most sort of damning criticism is that, you know, you you know these people are here struggling, you know, and there's no interest in, in helping them. Um, and so by having sort of Selena as this... And what's quite nice is that she's actually quite full of her own agency. She actually, you know, she's not just a... She isn't just a victim. I mean, awful things happen to her, but she does you know, seek help and kind of help herself. And and it's a lot of these themes which are, are removed sort of later in the movie and the and the TV right. show, for sure. Where does the title of the book come from? Because am I right in thinking it was originally called something else? Yeah, so it, obviously, you know, the sort of the, the, the what-ifs of, of books and titles. So uh, they were looking for a title and didn't want to call it after, you know, obviously the real place. You wanted to create this this fiction. And so uh, Payton, there's actually, a, it's a town in Texas. Apparently Grace was looking at a, an atlas and found it and changed and changed the, the spelling. You know, it's got this really wonderful sort of everywhere, nowhere quality. And actually also one of the bits that's never discussed really, but is very fascinating, is this whole subplot about why it's why the town is called Peyton Place. And it's actually named after a freed slave who uh, escapes. This, and it only comes out, it's like in the last 50 pages, it's this real secret the town doesn't want to talk about. And you, this comes up again and again. People say, why is it called Peyton Place? What's that weird castle up above the town? Oh, we don't talk about that. And you finally, just in the sort of it, parallel with Selena's trial, which is at the end of the book, you also get one of the sort of old men of the town tells this story about Peyton, this, who is a freed slave who goes to Europe, makes a fortune, marries a, a white French woman, moves back, wants to sort of integrate into Boston society, is rejected. And so as a big sort of FU to New England, but goes and builds this sort of castle as a and, and, but, and, and refuses to leave. And so it's this sort of there's this really interesting, I don't know if you know what Tony Morrison calls the Africanist presence, this idea that actually in all these incredibly white American stories, there's always this under you know there's always this undertow of the sort of the, the, the black presence that isn't visible and this the, the whole thing about the castle and it being called Peyton Place this being this big secret that the town doesn't want to talk about the fact that it has this black man to thank for 
for their existence. Yes, and the fact is really that, weird yeah. and really fascinating. And sort of uh, enforced integration and desegregation through the power of his money. And yeah. and also he's the ultimate symbol of the American dream. He's yeah. literally pulled himself up by by his bootstraps. So I'm very interested in the author, Grace Metallius. She came from a small town in New Hampshire. I'd love to get a sense of what early life was like for her. What was small town life, the way she experienced it? So she was born um, in 1924 in Manchester, New Hampshire, which I think is actually slightly larger than the sort of world of Peyton Place that she describes. But she's born um, Marie Grace de Repetigny. So it's French. So they're French-Canadian family. The family is extremely poor. They move a lot. Um, but she's really you know, this very sort of powerful mother figure and grandmother who are big parts of her life. Her father leaves when she's a child. Um, but And her mother is sort of just desperately unhappy because life hasn't given her what she wanted. And she, you know, desperately wanted the sort of, you know, these trappings of wealth and things that she was never going to have. And, you know, there was an awful lot of sort of keeping up appearances. Um, you know, her mother used to pass off, you know, flea market finds as, you know, great family heirlooms from, you know, back in France, you know. And this obviously this very sort of urgent need that was never going to be met because of the, the sort of context of her life. You know, you can see a little bit of kind of the power of sort of creativity in that but I think it was also very suffocating and so partly to try and escape the sort of misery of, of this of this poverty um, Grace would you know would sit in the local library you know she um, and she says you know that the kind of local librarian who would you know feed her books basically and, and you know that this passion for writing she really wanted to tell stories and this was obviously somewhere that she felt she could have have some control and she had all this all this stuff that she needed to get out that she wanted to you know to, to send out into the world and I also think it's then very telling that she got married extremely young I think she was 18 um, because obviously you know unfortunately one of the only ways as a woman out of your family home was was to marry so she married a high school sweetheart George Metallius at 18 and had kids it's a very obviously a very common trajectory for a woman of her class and of her time yeah you know but then the fact that she you know so knew what she wanted she so wanted to write you know that was just what she did you know she supported her husband as part of the GI bill he was able to go to college and became a teacher whilst she's having three kids and having to run the home but by all accounts she was a terrible housekeeper she obviously she just did not care she wanted to be writing um, and I did read an anecdote that when uh, after the book was published and so it was getting successful and, and a, a reporter was being sent round to her house or a photographer she was like you know oh god I better look like I know what I'm doing so she grabbed what she thought was a sponge it turned out to be a dead rat oh uh, <laughs> Which I really, it's a horrible, a horrible image, but also quite funny. So yeah, so so this was you know she she and her husband lived in a house that they referred to as it'll do. It was you know <laughs> essentially you know falling down and and not great. And and she yeah she was a terrible housekeeper, didn't care. Would on, at times lock her kids out so that she had space to write. You know she'd just be like you know eye on the prize, lady. eye on the prize. So you know and it's quite and one thing I find then very very fascinating is how the publicity around the book really tries to kind of play off the fact that this salacious book has been written by a housewife you right, know that, yeah. that comes up in all of the publicity you know and she's you know, even better she's a school teacher's wife you know it's the most sort of should be the most virtuous but you know yet she's lifted the lid on this you know scandalous town yeah well what was she like as a person because i've seen clips 
of her on YouTube after she's a best-selling author, and they show her as pretty chippy, kind of hard-bitten, a little cynical. Was she always like that, or did success change her? From from the little I've I've read, you know, that kind of talks about her as a person. I think I think that was kind of who she was. As, yeah. You know, said eyes on the prize. I think you know she she knew what she wanted, but I think she was also just very straightforward, very honest. And and that's you know one of the things that she wanted in her work was was honesty. And I think she found the sort of the you know all the the subterfuge of keeping up appearances. Yeah. You know, she found that to be dishonest. Well, she and, seems very contemporary when you see her speaking because exactly. she's she's just blunt and she's just calling it like it is. And I think so, you know I, I I think of her as a bit of a woman kind of out of her time in yeah. some ways. You know, she she was. Uh, you know, and I think she and she was constantly kind of surprised when she would be quite honest, and it would come back and bite her on the on the bum. I, there's yeah. a, I think she did a a big spread. You know, this the fifties is the era of the big you know, photo magazines, and she did a a big you know, piece for for one of them um, for like you know, Life the, magazine, yeah, or like Life or something. You know, showing her you know with her kids, you know, because she did with some money that she made initially, she did buy a nicer house sort of up on, at the lakes sort of in the town, and you know, it's in that she's sort of cavorting with her kids. It's all quite lovely. But she insisted that her boyfriend be in the pictures with her because she'd separated from her husband at this point. And apparently her lawyer was like, you know, you really can't include him in the photos because all he, all your husband needs to do at the divorce you know, hearing is just to be like, look, there's photos of them together mm. yeah. in this major national publication. And she was like, oh, no, no, it's fine. I really want TJ to be in them. You know, yeah. And there's these very nice photos. He's, he was a hunky local DJ. But, you know, the fact that the fact that she didn't, you know, she was just like, well, what does it matter? This is, you know, I'm with this guy. I'm happy. This is like, you know, you want my life. This is what you get, you know. So I think it's, yeah, she was she was quite blunt, I think. And she didn't appreciate the the ways that, that 50s America wanted you wanted you to behave. And I think she also, you know, there's the the book was advertised with the picture of her on the dust jacket. She refused to have a sort of studio portrait and mm. she instead used a sort of candid snap of her sitting working at her typewriter in her kitchen at home and she's just wearing jeans and trainers and like a man's flannel shirt and her hair's tied up in a ponytail and it's just a really sort of ordinary image but in a, and as you say it feels to us very contemporary it but- must have seemed really aspirational to people who read her book and young women who read a book and older women who read a book almost like just wondering if you think, Cara, she's the original version of the housewife who dashes off a bestseller in between laundry loads and changing diapers, like that Fifty Shades of Grey idea, the, you know, J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter. Although you yeah. could go back to Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein or... No, it's definitely... it's definitely Beyond a, that, it, it, the Bronte sisters. Yeah, well, it's definitely a trope in kind of the discussion of, of female authors is, you know, well, how did you make it work with your children? Strangely, does anyone ever ask a male author, <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, because how, men don't have to worry no. about it because they have somebody they've employed, which is their wife. Exactly. So, you know, so you do have that and, and sort of that, that overcoming that extra step of adversity becomes a sort of part of the, yeah. of the narrative. And I do think it's interesting because also, of course, given that she was, you know, struggling and she talks about the fact that, you know, they had financial woes, even though her husband and had this apparently good job as a as a school teacher, mm. um, you know the fact that she managed to you know to keep the family going e- even if it was in a filthy house, you know she, uh, yeah the fact that she then was still able to to write the book was sort of a part of the of the story. But I think that I think you're right that I think for a lot of different readers she was 
was attractive because you could read a lot of different things into it. Either she mm. was the housewife who managed to achieve yeah. something, you know, or it was the American dream. It was, you know, she pulled herself up out of, you know, this miserable sort of mill working life or, in New or Hampshire. I'm I'm getting to hell with housework. Like, yeah, like exactly. Yeah, it's come, my life, yeah. come into my house where I employ a dead rat as a sponge. <laughs> so this is <laughs> this so, is an option. So this is one of the other th- things that's really f- interesting to think about it as a sort of 50s book because of course we tend to think of the 50s as this slightly kind of dead decade you know you've got the mm. upheaval and the excitement of the war in the 40s you know women working in factories sort of having you know, all these opportunities for sort of new experiences away from you know yeah, this massive movement of people that happens during the wars one of the things I always think is really interesting and then you get the explosion of the 60s and you know the countercultural revolution and the women's movement and civil rights and you know, all this sort of stuff there is also a lot of thinking that actually in the 50s a lot of these things are in the air they just haven't quite found the sort of like the spark to kind of make them explode and actually this is a really great example i think of you know there was there were women reading this book and you think well what you know what what were people taking from what sort of cultural work yeah. was it doing that you could imagine you know being frank about a woman wanting sex wanting to initiate sexual contact you know yeah. or the fact that you know incest and child abuse happen and it's not just a kind of one in a million and you know not all families look like you know a sitcom on tv you know that actually you know yeah all these things are there it almost gives readers permission for the misfits in their own lives and the missteps and the mistakes in their own lives yeah and i and i think also it gave people a language to talk about things and i've you know you you read quite a lot of of later authors or sort of you know, cultural producers talking about encountering the book as kids. And one of my favourite, favourite quotes is John Waters, um, the, mm. the filmmaker, who said, uh, Grace Metallius put me on the wrong road early on and I am better for it, which is one of my favourites. Right. So you can probably trace a lineage from Peyton Place all the way through to what, things like Twin Peaks? and Definitely. Like the oh, the yeah. idea of things, you know... That, yeah, they're larger themes, but you know, things not being what they seem, the sort of the, the the squeaky perfect veneer that hides something. And there's actually I was talking about the character of Peyton and his castle. That's actually very gothic, you know, the idea that there's this sort yeah. of brooding castle where someone locked themselves away. It's a bit of Edgar Allan Poe. That's interesting because I m- I mentioned Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's definitely there. And I think you know that there, there is there's a lot of other sort of slightly uncanny things that happen in the book. So there's a very weird scene where this old woman is basically it turns out is a voyeur watching this younger couple having sex in their back garden but she dies <laughs> she has a heart attack whilst watching it's that spicy it's that spicy um but one of the norman one of the young boys is, is actually hiding under her porch as this all happens and he then ends up strangling the cat it's a deeply weird scene oh um, that's very so strange going on no no and, and, and so he has this like, this overbearing cat's really losing out in this uh, it, it really hierarchy. is the, the poor cat um so so you know you have these the, there's a lot going on in the book and it yeah, I would encourage people to read it because I do think, you know, it's, it's, it gets very flattened to just this one idea of, you know, naughtiness in a small town. But actually, what I think what she's trying to do is much more interesting and she's trying to give you this real wealth of different characters as well to explore different things. So Norman, the boy who struggles the cat, is really a Norman Bates kind of prototype. Right. So he's he's has this really domineering mother who gives him enemas. He's a teenage boy, you know. Oh, my Lord. Um, and, enemas, you know, and, just lo- like loving enemas. Yeah, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and he sort of talks about the fact he finds them quite comforting. There's a whole interesting thing. Uh. And so then he goes off to fight in the war, but his discharge has a Section 8 discharge. Which Don't knock it until you've tried it, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> the car starts talking about discharge straight after enemas. I'm going to the wrong place. <laughs> 
behave. So he's he's he um he's uh, sent out of the army as a section eight discharge, which either was mental unfitness or homosexuality. And it, um, Metellus doesn't specify, but you're quite you know there's a lot given to suggest that he that he is gay, and his mother insists on him hiding the fact that he's been dis- he's been discharged. So she makes him have a limp. She invents this whole backstory for him that he's been injured in the war and he gets this whole bizarre hero's welcome in the town. But it's actually all a front. I mean, this obviously feeds into the theory of things being really corrupted um, and yeah, not what they seem. And you feel a bit sorry for Norman Page. He's definitely, uh, he's a real victim of his mother. (laughs) So do you have any idea what the reaction was in her actual hometown? Her town was... uh, Gilmanton. Gilmanton, yeah. So they must have been overjoyed because they have a celebrity (laughs) in their midst, right? Uh, Best-selling author. I think I think they were very unhappy. Um, oh. As was much of, of of New England and particularly New Hampshire, they were oh, you know dear. there was there was a lot of. Um, I read something that's explained that many local papers would gleefully reproduce any bad review she got. Oh. you know whereas whereas the New York Times thought that actually it was you know it was pretty good and lots of sort of you know, out in the in the West you know lots of papers reviewed it. It's like actually she's not a bad writer. This is very interesting. Uh, that yes, apparently in the Northeast, just it was just a constant uh, effort to you know to talk her down. And, you know, because obviously, you know, a lot of of reporters turned up. There was a lot of, you know, oh, what's the real story behind this? You know, who are these characters? Can we uncover it? And and nobody wanted that sort of attention. I mean, you can kind of understand why. (laughs) Okay, that is a cavalcade of information. I need to pause. I need to digest. And then I will come back to you with more hunger for facts. Let's have some ads. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us. Why has it been covered up for 30 years? That man has been shot. My God. Search for the secret history of Flight 149 and subscribe now. So I was going to ask Kara um, why this becomes a film, but I feel like you've already answered that because there's no way that a book with those themes at that time with that audience isn't going to become a film. No, completely. I mean, it sold incredibly well. It made it made a lot of money. Um, you know, in a in an era when a, a new a book by first author might sell. 2,000 copies, it sold 60,000 in the first few weeks. I mean, crazy levels of sales. And it was, it topped the New York Times bestseller list for weeks and weeks and weeks. And interestingly, it even, even like 10 years later, it's still the best-selling fiction book. They reckon in the end, one in 29 Americans bought it. And you can imagine because of its, its sort of content, it was passed around. So I read a, something that suggested that one in six might have read it. That's wow. a lot of people. Yeah. You know, and so given that, obviously, you know, this was, you know, this was the era of the quick turnaround as well. So the, you know, the, um, it's only the next year that the film Oh, they hustle that baby out. right they, out. They get that. It's, it's, it's quickly out. And it's, um, it stars Lana Turner, who's the, Probably the best known. She plays Constance, the the buttoned up, um, you know, widowed, is, widowed so-called widowed, so-called widowed, who who eventually mother. eventually is won over. Brackets, it's basically a rape by the new head teacher, Mr. Macris. Uh, mm. But it's okay because uh, you know she actually realizes she does have desire for him, and so it's also <laughs> rape is really sort of retrospectively viewed as mm. like a good thing. There's some weird bits in the book, yeah. But yeah, so Lana Turner was in the film and she actually got her only ever Academy Award nomination. The film w- was well received, although it's really boring. 
So the film, I take it, has is sanitized from the book. You don't yes. get the cat, the totem pole no, of no, no. voyeurs so, and the strangled cat. No, and, and interestingly, that that character Norman is rewritten as basically just a bit shy and awkward, and he's played by Russ Tamblin, um, who is the most like charming yeah. guy. You know, I mean, you know, who wouldn't want to run off on a date with Russ Tamblin? He's just he was lovely. in. I remember he was in West Side Story, the original West Side Story, he's and he a, played Tom Thumb. Tom Thumb. Yeah, so he's a dancer. Yeah, he, he so, was in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Yeah, he's he's he's. Uh, a wonderful, yeah, very sort of very charming actor. And so, yeah, none of the weirdness is then left. And so, you know, things like, so Selena Cross, the girl from The Wrong Side of the Tracks, does, her character is still in the film. But, um, you know, in that very way with 50s cinema, yes, she is attacked by her stepfather and she does get pregnant. But, you know, in running away from him, she falls which, as we all know, means she's going to lose the baby in the oh, right. in the you know conventions yes. of fifties cinema. So there's no abortion performed. So that whole that whole storyline of the upstanding doctor having to wrestle with his conscience, yeah. which is actually one of the very progressive bits of the book, because he and you're really taken in as a reader, his inner voice saying, you know, I'm I'm a doctor. I'm sworn to protect life. You know, how can I think about doing this? But I am protecting life. I'm protecting the life being lived by Selena Cross. You know, it's actually it's really quite powerful. And considering that. It was so rare, you know, and this is the this is the pre Roe v. Wade era to actually have an abortion performed, and and there's there's and nothing awful happens. She's able to continue living her life. And in she fact, people's lives improve. Improve, you know, yeah. and and the doctor does have this moment of conscience, and he does he does admit to what he did on the stand because this will exonerate her for why she murdered her in self-defense murdered her stepfather. It, so that's all gone. So, you know, you yeah. take away all of that. So getting on to the television series, this uh, 60s TV series version of Peyton Place was considered the birth of the soap opera on U.S. telly. And I believe that, weirdly, there's kind of a Coronation Street connection. Yes, I, I love this one. So yeah. the um, so basically, American producers had seen how successful um, Granada's Coronation Street had been. So I think that was going... I think 1960 is the is the start of Coronation Street, and that Street. was like a nighttime soap opera. Yeah, like so it's, prime a, it's a prime time soap opera. Yeah. So it's um you know it's a, it's a it's an ongoing drama, and they wanted a property that would be that would be similar, and so they picked Peyton Place, which is quite as an aside. I think it's interesting. So Coronation Street was very proudly about a working class community, whereas what they do in the TV version of Peyton Place is get rid of as far as I can tell, most of the working class characters oh. and just make it really painfully middle class. Oh. And I do wonder if that was partly why it didn't have the longevity of something like Coronation Street. But anyway, but, but it, also did, it was very successful in its own time. And the thing is, though, Americans like to all kid themselves that everybody is uniformly middle class. So if you're poor, you're middle class. <laughs> if you're an, an aristocrat, blue blood that can trace your family line back to the Mayflower, you're middle class because it's not cool otherwise. Yeah, and this and this is very much, you know, as I've, I've mentioned, this is really what Grace Metalius, one of her main themes in the book is that, you know, disparity exists and yeah. by turning a blind eye it doesn't just make it magically go away. You know that that this is that this is here, and if you if you you know continue to pretend that you know all is fine, that's um, a very acute observation, and also very much ahead of its time because yeah. that's something that is being discussed. I mean, the whole Trump years in America cracked it wide open. Yeah, the whole class divide no, and, very, the, and the struggle. So. And, so, and also, yeah. one thing I, I really like about the novel is that. Yes, you have Lucas Cross, who's the horrible, abusive, incestuous, rapist stepfather, but you know. He is actually quite roundly drawn as a character, as are his uh, working class drinking buddies. Mm. There's this amazing scene where they, uh, he and his drinking buddies lock themselves in a cellar for, um, I think it's two months, 
basically with just alcohol oh. and go on a massive bender. Yeah. Um, which was apparently was it was a, a, a tale that Grace Metellus had been told of a, lo- oh. a local story that had happened. And one of the guys ends up nearly bleeding to death because he whacks himself with an axe because he's basically hallucinating that he's on a fairground ride. But it's really <laughs> well written. The whole it's really it's it's creepy. It's like. The, the sense of like danger but you understand why you know she she paints it really really well i mean that scene is done very well but you understand why these characters you know why they would resort why to they're alcohol so damaged. you know why they're so damaged mm. and yeah. you know but they still take pride in their work so the guy nearly chops his foot off is the school caretaker and you know and she talks really nicely about how he you know his love for the school bell that he polishes you know to within an inch of its life because it's his pride and he rings it every day doesn't matter how pissed he is he turns up to ring the school bell at three o'clock you know so it's it's it there's a there's a lot of layers which the tv show really flattens for sure okay. so so the sort of what starts with the film it's really really defanged by the yeah. Um, by the TV show. It doesn't even like to call itself a soap opera, Katie. So the producer, uh, in one of the great examples of Double Talk, refers to it as a high-class anthology drama. Oh, OK. Rather than a soap opera, when we all would all call it a soap opera. Yeah. Cara, the success of the TV show seems to be in large part down to the two attractive main stars, namely Ryan O'Neill and Mia Farrow. Yeah, so they, um, Mia Farrow particularly, I think, um, you know, so she plays Alison, so she's the, she's the, the heroine, um, and Ryan O'Neill plays Rodney Harrington, who, as I say, is a douchebag in the book, but who is, who is, who is made to be actually a kind of, you know, a, a, a jock, you know, but he's, he's sort of, you know, kind of things, bad things happen, but is it, he's a bit sort of wrong place, wrong time. It's not yeah. totally his fault, you know, and he basically drives around. So they set it then in, they set it contemporaneously. So it's set in the 60s by this point. So you lose all of the sort of efforts that she's making at kind of using the war as a sort of tool to help tell these stories. So that's all gone. And basically, you know, he, yeah, he drives around in this convertible, you know, wearing his, you know, jock jacket, looking gorgeous. So, but Mia Farrow was was Alison, and she would seems to have been a bit caught caught off guard by the success of the of the show, and oh. actually tried to get out quite quickly. So she's only in it for wait two a minute. Years. Oh, wait, she she's an actor. The whole point of being an actor <laughs> is to be on a hit show. What's her problem? Well, so t- she's married to Frank Sinatra at this oh, point, and apparently he, he urges her to 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 leave. So she's what is so his she's, problem though? What I don't know. You know, hi, I mean, you're married to an actress. She just got on a hit show. Relax. Well, oh, you know, and I don't know yeah. if it was considered, you know, in a way that still, you know, I was going to say déclassé, you know, in the way that, that some, you know, that soaps are still not seen as, you know, the, the epitome of, you know, of, of dramatic art, you know, that so, so she leaves um, and basically they never really regain the ratings. So I think, um, you know, it does, but it, it carries on. It, it runs from, um, I think, right till the late 60s. It's at 64 it's to 69. So my question is, what's going on with Grace Metallius during all this time that the Peyton Place frenzy is building? Uh, is she loving? her success and notoriety so I think I think she did because I think she had been poor and you know and having been poor you know having then having money is obviously you know removes a lot of the the material worries that you have but I think it's actually just a very sad story you know she 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 has you know um, agents who embezzle the money Mm -hmm. she um, she has as I say this string of unsuitable boyfriends um, she loses. Cust- I don't. Know if she loses custody, or if the kids choose to go and live with her husband, basically to try and get out of the sort of madness. Because obviously, she does have. She just has this string of really sort of ab- abusive, you know, and, and unhappy relationships. But you know, every time she goes to stay in New York to go and sort of do a business meeting, she doesn't stay in a hotel. She, you know, she she rents a whole a whole floor, you know, yeah. because she's got. So she just burns through the money. 
and she's persuaded to write a sequel. So she does write Return to Peyton Place, which is quite funny if you look at the, the acknowledgements, the, yeah, the dedication at the beginning. It's basically just to my agent who, who sort of made me do it. doesn't actually say that, but that's yeah. exactly what you... <laughs> what one interprets when you look at it so you know who who yeah who i can't who encouraged me or something mm. yeah. um so you know she so and that does sell sort of two million copies i mean nowhere near as successful as the as the first one but that's then made into a film so she does you know she gets this the rights money but she has a chronic alcohol problem and uh. she's obviously been drinking heavily her entire life and just keeps on going so she dies at the age of 39 mm, she does 39 <sighs> i mean to drink yourself to death by 39, that's, that's it, pretty horrible. Oh. So that's more of that real-life darkness, Katie. And then when you look at the lives of Ryan O'Neill and Mia Farrow, I mean, you can't move for darkness. Don't bring me down, man. <laughs> I'm going to bring you down briefly with the, the, the following salacious tales, Katie. Do it. So Ryan O'Neill obviously stars in Love Story, Dally McGraw, and it's a huge hit. Loved it. He is somewhat of a man around town. He squires at various points. Farrow Fawcett, Ursula Andress... Uh, Bianca Jagger, Barbara Streisand and Diana Ross. The low is probably when he is at uh, Farrah Fawcett's funeral and not recognising his own estranged daughter, Tatum O'Neill, oh, attempts to pull her. Um, that that was grim. That which, little story was grim. Which is pretty grim. And then we move on to the grimness of Mia Farrow, of course, if we're talking about someone who has made their name in a tale of incest and mm. abuse... Um, she claimed subsequently that her husband Woody Allen sexually assaulted their seven-year-old adopted daughter and then of course Woody Allen marries their adopted daughter Sunyi Previn as well although he always says that it was not his adopted daughter so that's his uh, loophole there I would still describe that as significant darkness yes yeah those are some very sad yeah some very sad families Um, it's interesting isn't it how we're talking about you know these these, these actors who are, you know, hired to pretend to be other people, and actually, you know, that their real lives are as much, you know, fodder for the for drama as as anything. And you and you do wonder if how much of that obviously comes out of fame. And I think Grace Metalius herself said near the end of her life, you know, if I could do it again, it would be better to be poor. Really? You know, yeah, which I think is very sad because I think, you know, obviously the... You she know, just you, needed a better accountant. I think she maybe needed a better accountant and maybe just to not be so generous. That was one of the things that, you know, oh. people said that, you know, there were endless sort of, you know, quote unquote friends, you know, we mm. would sort of circle around and she was, and she, you know, I suspect because she herself had had so little was very happy to, you know, to hand things out. And yeah, and by all accounts, that was one of the reasons why, you know, why she, it all got frittered away. No sponge, but plenty of sponges. <laughs> exactly. And dead rats. It almost sounds, Katie, like we should be talking about the curse of Peyton Place. Yeah, it's, it's you wonder, don't you? And it, because yeah. it, but it really did, you know, it, it metamorphosized. So, you know, having been this, the the book itself, um, and her as a very interesting but troubled figure, you know, because it then went through all these different iterations. You know, by the time you get into the seventies, where yeah. it's then the, the TV show gets revived as a as a daytime soap, you know, so oh, yeah. soap and it's all a full soap. And there's a couple of TV movies that come there's out of TV it. TV movies, you know, so so this sort of shorthand really continues but it basically just becomes a, a shorthand meaning you know naughty secrets in a small town there's none of the sort of the the kind of female empowerment or sort of yeah that's you know. sort of interesting it, it actually starts off as a very sophisticated commentary yeah on 
American culture, and it gets denuded and defanged, and and it, and eventually that's you know. So you have in in ninety eight when you've got the the um the Clinton Lewinsky scandal going on. Lindsey Graham stands up and he's you know he's disgusted about what's going on. And says you know, is this Watergate or is it Peyton Place? You know this idea oh. that it's just you know it becomes this byword for kind of tackiness and sort of small town debauchery, which I think in many ways is a bit of a shame because it also means, and partly because in that way that often what's remembered, you know, culturally, you know, whether that's by academics or by sort of, you know, all the different ways that we sort of think about culture, often the fact that something is very successful is a reason to be suspicious of it. You know, the fact that the fact that it was outrageously successful in its own day it can't be any good. That's right. It sort of delegitimizes it. That's so interesting because Grace Metallius herself had this salty comment about her critic. She said, if I'm such a lousy writer, then an awful lot of people have lousy taste. (laughs) Yeah, exactly that. And I think, you know, it's really worth thinking about it and all the cultural work that it was doing in the 50s and the fact that it's that you know it's included in the lyric and in the song i think it's worth revisiting it because it was you know it it does trouble some of our understandings of what the 1950s looked like and i also think that there's there's misogyny at play i mean if we think if we think about the 50s and sort of writing you know it's all the beats it's all the sort of it's a very sort of macho masculine yeah you know and the fact that actually you know and that she was you know, and that you couldn't really pigeonhole her, as you said, the fact no. that she was this kind of, she d- wasn't Lana Turner, she wasn't a glamour girl, she didn't want to sort of, you know, trip around Hollywood in high heels, you know, she she she, she just wanted to put her, her trainers on and, and write. Yeah, you know, and the, she was a working writer. She was, you know, but but I think, you know, the fact that, that there was so much that she was trying to say in the book that's actually you know, still does read. I mean, the sexy bits don't read, obviously, as very exciting now to a modern reader because you're like, you know, there's an awful lot of water under the bridge since then. But things like the treatment of the abortion scene, things actually, I re- even rereading it now, I was like, you know what, that does feel really yeah. contemporary. You know, the, the fact that you could talk about, you know, that she was actually talking about the fact that this stuff happened or that, you know, and the fact also so Selena Cross's mother is regularly beaten by, um, by Lucas. Mm. And everyone knows it. It's an open secret, but no one ever does anything. And she really, really makes the point that there is, you know, that there is communal responsibility for letting these things happen. Wow. It's not just Nellie's fault that she is married to this terrible man. The fact that no one steps in, the fact that no one offers her help, yeah. you know, and yeah, well, it, it's really, it's really tragic. But, it, it, you know, it still feels, as you say, Katie, you know, very relevant when we're thinking about what, you know, what makes community, you know, how do we re- relate to our fellow, you know, to our fellow people? And, you know, what does go on behind closed doors? And, you know, how, how do we, you know, how do how do we connect? I can't help but wonder, Cara, if Grace Metellius was writing Peyton Place today, would she still be alive? That's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, you wonder if if someone like that, you know, you might have had more avenues to help, you know, mm. um, but you just you you just can't know. And, can and could she even write a patent place? I mean, do we have as many hang ups? I guess we you know, there's just as much hypocrisy, but perhaps there's more avenues now. Indeed, indeed, yeah, you know, and, and you know, power relations still exist. I mean, that's one of her major points is that you know is that the 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 cards are stacked against some of these characters because of you know how the power structures are, are set up. Obviously, I don't think it would it would have the same. Yeah, it wouldn't use exactly the same terms, I suppose, to try and sort of expose that story. But you know, class inequality, you know, racial inequality, gender inequality, all these things are still there. They just you know display in very sort of different different ways and it's you know I mentioned it a little bit earlier talking about the fact that the, the town is founded by this black man who's this sort of you know this hidden secret it's very much a study in whiteness the book and obviously you know you can imagine that 
a modern retelling would would open up, you know, the way that sort of that race as a structure in America is. That'd be a really interesting yeah. uh, enhancement, I think, of the original. Well, definitely, and they tried. So in that, so the TV show, as I say, ran for a long time across the 60s, but um, it's really a product of the sort of conservative impulse in the 60s. I say it gets very defanged. But, you know, audiences kind of fall away because it just starts to look super square. You know, you think mm. by sort of 68, 69, you know, the world is moving on. Um, and, you know, they tried sort of desperately to introduce a black family and to try and sort of, so you have a, sort of a neurosurgeon who turns up. By all accounts, it just... it. it it was just shoehorning in issues and you, you you can feel it when you know into in one line they're trying to kind of cover off about three different social ills you know oh, it's so funny because i did read a quote where the writers were announcing before the final series of the tv show that they were they were trying to hip it up tom and they said uh promise the show would deal with electrifying subjects the war the draft riots music god and godlessness so they they were they were trying, but I don't think anyone believed that this that this little kind of you know New England fishing village, as they sort of made it in the TV show, was was really the the nexus for where you were going to unpack all these social problems. And my final my final uh, note about the TV show, which I thought you guys would enjoy. So a it was inspired by Coronation Street, but then um, the sets got repurposed for Murder She Wrote. Oh, that's nice. So there you go. That the the the, 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 the location is you know, Jessica Fletcher is you know romping around solving <laughs> crimes uh, a few decades afterwards. So there you go. Dr. Cara Robway, it has once again been an enormous pleasure to hear you educate Katie and me in all these things. I love Thank it. you so much for bringing all that to the party. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. So that was Peyton Place, Katie. Oh, was it ever. Definitely not Melrose Place. No, no. I think we established that beyond the shadow of a doubt. I find that was one of those topics which I enjoy so much on this show, where you've got the big ones, of which you know a little bit, and then you've got your favourites, of which you know a great deal. And then, like today, the subjects about which you know nothing at the start, and now we're looking at each other and our brains are just bulging and pulsating with fresh knowledge. <laughs> Your head did look a little misshapen. I didn't really <laughs> want to say anything. I really love that detail about uh, the subtext of the freed slave who came back to Peyton Place and lived in a castle and named the whole town after himself. I think that's very interesting, very topical. And Billy is somebody with his finger on the pulse of what is exciting and stimulating and titillating the world, and I think he was absolutely correct in including Peyton Place. Katie, another huge uh, topic next week. There is trouble. Do you know where there is trouble? Uh, trouble in the Suez. It's in the Suez. Suez. That's a canal. <laughs> if you can't wait for that trouble in that particular canal, why not try a different <laughs> podcast called .com? Funny you should mention this because this is a job I've thrown my heart and soul into. It's the only podcast documentary series about the people of the internet, and Series 2 is out now. Series 2 is all about the social media website Reddit. And I'll tell you what, T-O-M, it's a whole lot darker and more complex than the world of Wikipedia, which was Series 1. We're lifting the veil on the faces of the internet. Those faces were previously veiled, and I have now lifted them, and I am further uncovering the truth behind some of the biggest stories of the century, like the GameStop saga that happened last year, white supremacy and alt-right activism, and the biggest leak of celebrity nudes in history. And when you talk about nudes and leaking, well, it gets pretty messy. And that is when you need your damp cloth utopia, we didn't start the fire, merchandise tea towel. So go and listen. 
It's dot com, D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe now. Katie, you have me at Celebrity Nudes. If everyone would like to follow us, that would make Katie and me very happy. You can find us at Spread That Fire on all the usual social media places, and you can subscribe too. So, Tom, you know how I've been really bigging up these We Didn't Start the Fire tea towel For sure. items? Well, uh, I I think I over-ordered, uh. and uh, delivery happened, and uh, I have a surplus oh. of We Didn't Start the Fire tea towels. They're delightful. There's just a lot of them. So just kind of wondering, listeners, could I maybe offload some of these on you guys? Could this be something you can incorporate in your home? Let us know. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.